Chun. May it please the court. My name is Kevin Ross. I represent Jesse Blankenship. Yes, sir. Today I'd like to discuss with the court um, some sentencing issues, uh, particularly that affect Mr. Blankenship and the sentencing guideline range, that if um, the court were to agree, would reduce his sentencing guideline to that of less than life in prison. I think the strongest argument to be made that I could lead off with um, is the enhancement um, that was given to Mr. Blankenship in regards to the use of a dangerous weapon um, in this regard. Um, the guidelines in 2A4.1B3 gives a two-level increase if a dangerous weapon was used. Now, the testimony from the trial um, was that uh, Mr. Jones did not see a weapon, a firearm, until... Um, he got into the car in which he sat in the passenger seat, and Mr. Blankenship was in the back seat behind the driver's side. And it was at that time that he saw a gun, i.e., it was visual, brandished, perhaps, you could say. However, to apply... Would you repeat that? I, I didn't hear your word. Yes, so... Something you might say. I'm sorry? Say brandished, you might say. Brandished, you might say. He saw it was visible. It was displayed. Um, but the, the guideline is clear in its definitions that to apply the dangerous weapon enhancement under 2A4.1, that it has to be more than brandishing, um, displaying or possessing a firearm. And it goes to that aspect of otherwise used. Does this make any difference when he gets a life sentence? Your Honor, I think it, it's important because even though the judge gave him a life sentence, if we, if his guideline range goes down, then it's not an like it's not life. It's it could be less than life. I mean, do you did you calculate that? I'm just wondering. Your Honor, I didn't go through all the specifics. I just went through the overall aspect of if these were granted, his guideline range would have been less than the life, which is at the very end of the, of right. the, of the, of the guidelines. So in essence, Your Honor, it it's becomes a, a possibility. But more importantly, the court needs to properly apply the guidelines. And in this particular case, it did not. Your Honor... It's clear from the record, I'll, I'll issue some trial sites for the court um, to look at. So, record on 3252 to 3253, 3229. Your Honor, it's, it, when you look at otherwise used, that's what the, the government will, will say is, you know, it's used because of intimidation um, aspect. But there's no intimidation with the use of this gun as to Mr. Jones. It's just clear as day in the record. Um, cases that this court... Would you, how do you draw that inference that it was no intimidation to Mr. Jones if he 
sees the man sitting behind him with the pistol. So when the definition of otherwise used, brandish, has to be more than brandish. The intimidation comes with that specific act of like pointing. If you're pointing, that's the intimidation, Your Honor. Knowing that he's a member of this extraordinarily violent gang and that he has the power, he was on the task force or not? He was trying to get on the task force. He was trying, correct. He's a major. He knows he's going to lose his patch. My first thought was that that heated up rod was a dangerous weapon. But anyway, doesn't that figure into the overall circumstance of the pistol being present? You know, I can answer that both ways. I think it cuts both ways. Because he knew that, he probably knew that he had a gun, right? I mean, given the fact that he could be violent and things of that nature. So it's not something that he was intimidated by because he sees this guy in that regard. But here's really my point. In Dunigan, Your Honor, it says that displaying a weapon without pointing or targeting should be classified as brandished. But pointing the weapon at any individual or group of individuals in a specific manner should be otherwise used. The cases that this court has cited in the Dunigan case, Williams, Payne, and Orr, all had the common denominator of the weapon was pointed at an individual. So clearly that's in the otherwise used. In this particular case, it was not. And I think that that is important here. There is no, if you look at the trial testimony as well from Jones, he talks about him going willingly at one point, or telling the agents that he went willingly, and that he wanted to get this over with. So the idea of intimidation because of this firearm, I don't think is present, Your Honor. So I think if the court looks at the definitions of otherwise used, the definitions of using a dangerous weapon, in this particular case, the weapon was never pointed. It wasn't as if Mr. Blankenship was sitting next to Mr. Jones, you know, so he knows and he's looking over the corner that this, I'm intimidated by this. So that's a two-level increase, Your Honor, that should go away in that regard. The other aspect in this case is the two-level enhancement for the leadership role. In looking at that, in Exhibit 500, there is a hierarchy of the Aryan Circle. It is a very structured organization. There's the upper room group, and those are the people that get to call all the shots. Those are the leaders, organizers, supervisors, in a sense, in the upper room. Then you have the middle group, and then you come down. As you go down, you get to the definition or the category of major, and that's two levels below just a member. And I would argue to the court that in this hierarchy of the Aryan Circle, it's more of a managerial role of managing people underneath him as a major, rather than a leader's organizer role, 
where he's getting to call those shots. I mean, the upper room is the group that said, hey, you can order, we're going to order a hit on this person, discipline that person, you do this, you do that. They were giving orders down the chain. And as a major, he was in a more of a managerial capacity to make sure that those orders were carried out, in essence. And so in the hierarchy, as you can see in Exhibit 500, the two-level enhancement, I mean, sorry, a three-level enhancement for a manager role, I think is, would argue is more appropriate in the structure of this organization than that of a four-level role of a leadership. He was in charge of the prisons in Missouri, right? He was in the managerial capacity of, of overseeing the Missouri that was given to him by the leaders of the organization in the upper room as they got to make those decisions. And I see that my time is up. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Mr. Franklin is next. I'm just wondering, is Mr. Chen still in Beaumont? No, Your Honor. I believe he's in Colorado currently. Oh, you, would, you would think they'd finally catch on. May it please the court, I'm Eric Franklin. I represent appellant William Glenn Chun. This court should reverse the trial court because Mr. Chun was denied effective assistance of counsel. And they should find that that was prejudicial. Because he was not effectively assisted by counsel, the trial court's denial of the motion for continuance was also improper. The Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel is, has an elevated status among fundamental constitutional rights, it, principally because it affects the defendant's ability to assert the rights they may have. The Strickland v. Washington court found that any actual or constructive denial of assistance of counsel is legally presumed to result in prejudice, as do certain state actions. Powell v. Alabama firmly established that the Constitution requires the guiding hand of counsel at every step of proceedings against a criminal defendant, even if that defendant is an educated or intelligent layperson. Because this right is so fundamental, a court may overturn a judgment for denial of benefit of counsel on its own, or it may determine there was a due process violation, or both. The Supreme Court has found that ... I'm sorry. We're all looking. We're all scrambling to find an ineffective assistance of counsel issue. Your Honor, in our first point, we talked about the ... perhaps I'm stating it differently, but the fundamental issue in our first point was he was denied his Sixth Amendment right to assistance of counsel because the Bureau of Prisons failed to give Mr. Montalvo, his defense counsel, access to Mr. Chun. The basis for the motion for continuance that Mr. Montalvo filed was that he had not been allowed to meet with Chun. 
He cataloged that Sean had been transferred to the prison in July, that he had been limited to one visit per week. And this is, the core issue here is not ineffective assistance by Mr. Montalvo. That's not what we're arguing today. What we're arguing is that Mr. Montalvo, and this goes to United States v. Chronic, Mr. Montalvo gave competent representation, but what happens when a competent counsel is still unable to effectively assist in reviewing discovery? And that was the prime basis for the motion for continuance. Mr. Montalvo stated on the record that he needed Sean to assist him in reviewing the discovery and that it would be helpful to him in his defense of the case. At that point, the court had an opportunity, the opportunity to grant the motion for continuance, realizing that Sean had only been in Beaumont and had access to his counsel from mid-July to September 26th when they filed the motion for continuance, or September 16th, excuse me, when he had got permission from the Supervisor Attorney Bureau of Prison to meet with Sean. September 18th, he filed a motion for continuance, but the trial went forward anyway. At that point, the court could have cured the fact that Mr. Montalvo had been prevented from visiting Mr. Chun. The testimony from Mr. Montalvo, excuse me, the statements from Mr. Montalvo established that he had phone calls with Mr. Chun, but he was only able to speak with him about once a week. From the time Chun arrived in July to September 18th when he filed the motion for continuance, that would have been about nine to ten meetings total. Mr. Montalvo testified, excuse me, he stated at the hearing that Chun had only reviewed two to three percent of the discovery materials, which left around 48,500 pages of discovery unreviewed by Chun. The government argues Chun and his counsel had nine months to prepare for trial, but the amount of calendar days are irrelevant as regards whether Chun had the guiding hand of counsel throughout the process. The fact that... So is your position that if you don't have five years to read three million pages that you don't have an effective trial, I mean, that you have to be able to read every single page and it doesn't need to be organized or distilled for you? What would be different in the trial strategy had the access to discovery been more robust? Your Honor, we're left to conjecture how it would have been different. That's part of the issue. There were 48,500 pages of unreviewed discovery here. In United States v. Chronic, the court addressed what happens when it is left to conjecture. It said that effectively there are certain surrounding circumstances where a court may presume ineffectiveness and also that it was prejudicial. In Chronic, the court did not say that he was denied assistance, but it did say that 
You'll be able to raise all this. Chun will assume in the conviction is upheld in a 2255. But frankly, I mean, this is a lot of what you're telling us is not in your brief. And as I apprehended, the reason Mr. Chun may have been denied some kinds of access, certainly to the documents, was that they were afraid that whoever was talked about or had participated in creating those documents was not going to have a very long life. So the court did have to balance those factors. Your Honor, two points. Section 1A of our brief addresses the Fifth and Sixth, the assistance of counsel and the due process violations. As regards the denial of Mr. Montalvo's motion to allow Chun to independently review discovery, the court, at the hearing, Mr. Montalvo said he would be able to comply with the protective order, that Mr. Chun had had a similar case in Mississippi, and that his proposal was granted there, that it did comply with the protective order there. The trial court, in denying that motion in the Eastern District of Texas, reiterated the purpose of the protective order, stated that it was for confidentiality, curb harm, limit improper influence, and protect potential witnesses, but it failed to address how that motion, how Montalvo's motion, would violate the order, particularly in light of the fact that Mr. Montalvo said he could comply with it, that it could comply with it. So there's no evidence on the record of how or why the proposal of letting Chun independently review on a computer would have actually violated the protective order. You don't have a constitutional right to whatever method you think is good. The fact that you accept it is not, but anyway, I don't know if it's even properly before us. Your Honor, if I may respond, the courts have found in three different scenarios a presumption of prejudicial denial of counsel, and that has been in an interruption or interference in a critical stage. It has been when there's been a fundamental right assessed, and there's been when government, certain type of government actions have interfered with assistance of counsel. So it's really denial of counsel, not ineffective assistance of counsel. Yes, Your Honor. Strickland calls it assistance of counsel. Again, I apologize for my misstatement. This is the issue raised in Cronic, which is that it's not ineffective on the part of his trial counsel. It's effective trial counsel that was denied access to his client in preparation for trial. Okay. Well, your red light's on, so you have time for rebuttal. Ms. Reed. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Mahogany Reed for the United States. I'll start with the continuance issue, unless the Court would like me to start elsewhere. As we explained in our brief, the district court acted well within its discretion to deny the defendant's request to continue their trial a sixth time. 
the district court's determination that none of the relevant factors favored a continuance, I think, is borne out by the record. And um, I'd like to focus on three points. Um, first, contrary the, to the defendants and specifically Mr. Chun's contention, they had more than adequate time to prepare for trial. I take Mr. Chun's point that he didn't have an opportunity to meet in person with his counsel until a little more than a month out from trial. Um, and, you know, we don't have any basis to dispute that. But we do think that the month and a week out from trial that uh, counsel had to meet with Mr. Chun was more than sufficient under this court's case law. Um, to my second point, you know, I think it's important that the government made discovery available to the defendants and their counsel from the very beginning of this case. We outlined the nature and extent of those accommodations in our responses to Mr. Chun's second continuance motion, and I think in response to Mr. Blankenship's continuance motion as well. We directed them to relevant portions of the discovery. We provided searchable discovery indexes to aid in review. Um, we permitted defense counsel to inspect the majority of Jenks Act materials for more than two months before trial. Um, and we assisted in scheduling visits between counsel and the defendant at the federal facility where he was housed. Um, and so we think that the, the government's attempts to provide discovery on a timely, more than timely basis to the defendants and to aid in their review weighed against granting the defendants a sixth continuance. And third, the defendants have failed to establish prejudice. We explain this in our brief, but we think this court's cases require the defendants to specify how their inability to review discovery affected their performance at trial. And they haven't even attempted to do so at trial. I think Mr. Chun in particular would be hard pressed to do so where he allocated at his sentencing hearing that he believed his counsel thoroughly cross-examined multiple witnesses and successfully, in his view, impeached multiple witnesses. Um, to the extent Mr. Chun uh, asked this court to presume prejudice on um, his constitutional claims. We maintain that those claims aren't preserved, are not properly before this court. The ineffective assistance of counsel claim um, was not adequately pressed and would not be proper for review on direct appeal in any event. But on the merits, I haven't had a chance to go back and read all the cases cited in chronic footnote 25 where courts may presume prejudice, but I, I can confidently represent that this case is not of the same mold as those cases. Um, and I think chronic itself under, undermines Mr. Chun's argument that he can readily establish prejudice here, where again, the district court granted multiple continuances and the defendants had the aid of the government in reviewing um, discovery. If the court has no questions, I'll, I'll uh, go to the sentencing issues raised by Mr. Blankenship. Um, you know, we think that the district court did not clearly err in applying the dangerous weapon enhancement. Um, as some of the questions from Judges Jones and Elrod suggested, you know, we think that Mr. Blankenship's use of the firearm did constitute an otherwise use in this context. And it really boils down to the context of his use, right? We, we don't dispute the testimony establishes that Mr. Blankenship took the firearm out of his waistband and placed it on his lap when he was seated in the back seat of uh, the car behind Mr. Jones. But it was the, uh, and the district court determined that it was the, uh, 
the continued placement of the firearm on his lap that served to do a little more than intimidate Mr. Jones. It served to serve as, it served as a continuing threat of harm to Mr. Jones. I think Mr. Jones testified that he understood the context to be that if he attempted to escape, it would be his life or at least a substantial harm to him. And so we do think that that constitutes other, an otherwise use of the firearm more than brandishing of the firearm. In the enhancement, in the, in the guidelines on the, you know, about the enhancement that would say that you have to actually point it at someone? No, Your Honor. I think Mr. Blankenship cited this court's decision in Donegan where the court did consider point the firearm cases to determine that that action takes brandishing to an otherwise use. But the court has never said, and the text of the guidelines certainly doesn't require that a defendant has to point the firearm for a brandishing to be an otherwise use of the firearm. The question is whether the use of the firearm creates an individualized threat against the victim. If we were, if we were to reverse it, would a reversal of the two, two level enhancement make any difference? I think it would. It would take Mr. Blankenship's adjusted offense level from a 44 to a 42, which combined with his criminal history category of six would be a 360 to life guidelines range. And the district court did not say that it would impose a term of life, even if it made an error in the guideline calculation. And so we do think that if you disagree with us on the otherwise use enhancement, resentencing would be appropriate. Could I ask a quick question about the serious bodily injury enhancement? Yes, Your Honor. Do you agree that the guideline says serious bodily injury must include extreme physical pain? Yes, Your Honor. Does the fact that they gave him drugs ahead of time to medicate him and that he said he didn't, he actually said he didn't feel anything mitigate against him getting this enhancement because there wasn't extreme physical pain because the guy himself, the gentleman said he didn't feel anything and he was all drugged up. He took the hit on the bong and I think had meth too or something. Right, Your Honor. I don't think that mitigates or establishes an error in applying the enhancement. The question is whether on the record as a whole, the government established that the enhancement was applicable by a preponderance of the evidence. How would it be applicable if the gentleman said he didn't experience pain? Explain that. Well, I don't think he said he didn't experience pain. I thought he said he didn't feel anything. I don't think he quite said he didn't feel anything. He did say that he hit the meth pipe and he hit the weed pipe was his testimony in an attempt to numb the pain, but I don't think he explicitly said he did not feel pain. But, you know, I think it's important that the district court was present for that testimony. The district court was able to make, you know, a credibility determination about what weight to give that testimony against the description of the application of the red hot metal rod to Mr. Jones's torso and the tattooing over the torso to determine that extreme Mr. Jones experienced extreme physical pain, notwithstanding his testimony that he was was under the influence with the attempt to 
um, ameliorate any pain. Okay, and this was on his torso, not on... Not on his arm. Yes, Your Honor. I think that was a, a misstatement in the brief. It, it was on his because torso. Because the arm looks the same both before and after. They, we have a pictures of the... Never mind. I'm just... That's right. And, and the district court did consider that as well in determining whether to imply, apply the enhancement. It determined that because the pictures of the torso or the pictures of the patch um, uh, were taken multiple, two years after the injury or after the patch removal process, that it didn't weigh against application of the enhancement. Um, but, you know, I think there were some uh, markings on, on top of, of the patch that the district court uh, was aware of. Um, and just very quickly on the, um, the leadership enhancement, we do think that Mr. Blankenship um, uh, was properly assessed a leader organizer enhancement. There was testimony from Brandon Fritz that he oversaw the entire uh, Missouri Department of Corrections on the Aryan Circle's behalf. He was also a major over the Federal Bureau of Prisons, so all federal prison systems, and he um, undertook to direct others' actions in his, in, not only in that capacity. I, I don't think that it's right um, um, that only uh, upper board members of the Aryan Circle could be assessed leader organizer enhancement under the guidelines. Don't we have some cases that middle management leaders are, can get that? Yes, yes, Your Honor. This court has assessed the enhancement against captains and majors in other cases as well. Um, unless the court has further questions, I'm happy to cede the rest of my time. We ask that you affirm. Thank you. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Ross. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, briefly, um, I just want to be, if I wasn't clear, I want to be clear in regards to the, the brandishing issue. Um, the guideline to apply says that it has to be more than brandishing. And you, in the guidelines on the comment, or 1B1.1, comment note 1C, it says brandished with reference to a dangerous weapon, including a firearm, means that all or part of the weapon was displayed or the presence of the weapon was otherwise made known to another person in order to intimidate that person. And so that is the definition of, of brandishing. Now, this court in Dunigan has been... Any evidence was presented at sentencing about intimidation or lack of it? Your Honor, I think it was just from the, from the testimony in regards to... There was what Mr. Jones had said that on, on direct examination, um, that he, based on leading questions, that he really didn't want to go and... Um, you know, he knew why they were here. Uh, he thought he was going to get the patch removed. He asked about, you know, going to the tattoo parlor instead of him having it, um, you know, burned. But that was that was really the basis of it. I mean, that was that was all. I don't think, in essence, there was a lot that he was intimidated. Was there any testimony to contradict intimidation or any reference to the court testimony or any argument about it? Not to my knowledge, Your Honor. Not that I recall. I, I think it was just one of those situations in which, 
Well, I see that my time is, is running down, but the, the point is that Dunigan in this circuit's case law says that you have to point to be more than brandishing. Um, and brandishing, it's just not, it's not applicable in this case um, because there wasn't a pointing um, in this case. And I see that my time is up. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Judge. All right. <clears throat> Mr. Franklin. Franklin, I know you argued Fifth and Sixth Amendment, but this uh, chronic thing took me by surprise because it's not cited in your brief. Your Honor, we uh, filed a supplemental 28-J letter. No, we, we have your argument. Your Honor, page 16 of our brief addresses the guiding hand of counsel in the proceedings against the defendant, Powell v. Alabama, court held that the time between arraignment and trial is perhaps the most critical of the proceedings against a defendant and therefore consultation, thorough investiga thoroughgoing investigation and preparation are vitally important. We'd like to reiterate, reiterate again that here, Chum was denied the right to confer with and have the aid of his counsel. We need to start his clock running. Chum was denied the right to confer with and have the aid of counsel, and this is documented in the record by the motion for continuance and the statements made by his counsel on record. So this is a, a case where he was denied, uh, he, the defense attorney, was denied access to his client, said that he needed access to properly defend him and needed him to review the discovery. So the core issue here is that Chum was denied access to his counsel and as a result, we ask that this court find that there was a denial of assistance of counsel in reverse. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, uh, everyone. Uh, Mr. Ross and Mr. Franklin, you're